AJ, I would like to start this broadcast off, if you'll allow it, with a parable. I'm not sure where this is going, but I'm curious. I'm going to call this parable the parable of the sower, because I'm pretty sure, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that's not taken. Sower person who sows or sower person that sows seeds? Sows seeds. And I'm, I didn't look this up to see if there's any high profile parables with the same name, but I'm guessing not. So the year is 2004. The scene is set in Houston, Texas. Okay. And mm-hmm. Houston has a problem. That and was pretty nice. Apparently, right? it's only one <laughs> that we're going to get into today. Right, so, right. okay, I'm with you. I'm sure I can anticipate the problem you have in mind. And no, it's not the breakup of Destiny's Child, which actually happened in 2006. But the writing know? was kind of on the wall. You always know what I'm thinking. <laughs> they still had a few hits before they broke up. I'm Jordan. And I'm AJ. You're listening to We Built It That Way, a show about how we shape the places we live and how they shape us, our behaviors, our relationships, our opportunities, and our imagination. So in 2004, the American Highway Users Alliance called one of the interchanges on the Katy Freeway in Houston, which connects central Houston to the western suburbs, um, they called one of its interchanges the second worst bottleneck in the whole nation, wasting 25 million hours a year of commuter time. Can you believe that? I have questions about that number, but I'll (laughs) save them for another time. Is it related to how many hours are in a year? Yes. (laughs) Don't think too hard about it. And so speeding ahead, um, the state of Texas stepped in, kind of just taking up the cause of the underdog as uh, the state of Texas is wont to do, and said, you know what, this is not okay. And we have $2.8 billion lying around, and we're going to do something about it. (laughs) And before you say something about how that money could be used to solve things like poverty, hunger, homelessness... No, I mean, it was just laying around. I mean, that makes like couch cushion money. It was money laying around. And yeah. yeah, think about it. When your grandma gives you a 50, okay, for your birthday, mm-hmm. are you going to buy socks with that 50? Are you going to go out no. and buy beer? You're well, going to go I, get. I couldn't buy beer you with and your- my grandma's money ever. <laughs> That'd be, she would not be happy, but I take your point. <laughs> Well, my grandmother wouldn't have been happy either, but I did it once. Point is, state of Texas steps in and says, this is a problem that can't persist. They widened the Katy Freeway over the span of, I think it's 2008 to 2011. Uh, They widened the freeway to 23 lanes and up to 26 at its widest points. Yeah, yeah. That was about the time that the Katy Freeway started being referred to as the Mississippi River of car infrastructure. (laughs) Yeah, I think I've seen it referred to as either the widest freeway in North America or the widest in the world. Well, you know, it's Texas. But either way, that (laughs) we're going to half ass it or are we going to do it? (laughs) Right. Flowed perfectly from that point on. So this is the case, you know. This is a success story, and it's the reason that I know it's a success story is that in a later report by the American Highway Users Alliance called Unclogging America's Arteries, okay, this was declared a, a success story. 
Uh, so that's the end of the story. <laughs> Actually, what happened is that um, it was declared a success story by the people kind of involved in lobbying for the freeway expansion. But local media had been reporting on this for a while, uh, noting that congestion didn't seem to be getting any better. The folks at City Observatory did a study and found that actually within, I think, three years, the morning commute time had increased by 30% and the afternoon commute was up 55%. Okay. So it was really about as successful as my karaoke career has been so far. Okay. (laughs) So this parable, as I've termed the parable of the sower, is really a parable about planting seeds. And those seeds were highway lanes. And what they grew into was more traffic. And this is a parable... But it's also just one of many examples (laughs) across the world where the solution to uh, congestion is to create more lanes of travel or more roadways. And the result is just more congestion. And that's what today's episode is about. Interesting that we continue doing the thing that hasn't worked yet. Okay, well, it's America and we are persistent and dogged, so... By God, we're going to make this thing work eventually, right? Right. Well, that's what we're going to spend today's episode talking about. This is like a a study in our human ability to believe something and forge ahead with it, fully believing that what we're doing is right, even, even when in all, the face of all, all the evidence to the contrary. All <laughs> the evidence says otherwise. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, Last time on this podcast, we talked about traffic congestion and, you know, generally what generates traffic congestion from sort of a systemic standpoint and things like what makes it annoying and how our attitudes about congestion have shifted throughout the years and even have been shaped by interests such as um, those in the auto industry. And where we left off was that with this prevailing idea that The roadway is a capacity problem solved by finding the right balance of supply for the demand that exists. And so, you know, the principal response in this country to the problem of clogged arteries has really just been making the arteries bigger and making more of the big arteries. Which makes sense when we're, you know, trying to prevent a heart attack because it's Mm -hmm. science and it's factual, but... Unfortunately, this really isn't that because it doesn't take into the account that people are difficult to control and predict and human behavior definitely colors responses to things like this. You know, sometimes it can be really useful to use analogies to understand and explain human behavior, but it is important that the analogies also like are applicable and sort of make sense and work. It's a lot less helpful when they're sort of the opposite of how <laughs> like how a dynamic works. And we discussed that this hierarchical roadway system where you have, you know, small, um, slow speed streets that feed into collectors and on into arterials and highways. These bigger ones, the higher speed arteries like highways, they have a gravitational pull on traffic. And they also often only represent the only option or one of very few options that you could take to get somewhere. So I think that this should pretty much give us uh, a clue as to where we're heading with this episode. 
So I, I sense that where we're going with this discussion of applicable analogies versus those that are maybe not so applicable is we're going to have the good old liquid versus gas talk, right? I think it's I think it's time for the liquid versus gas talk. Of course, that's, you know, this discussion of how we've always historically referred to traffic with the same types of terminology that we refer to liquids. We have this hierarchical set of buckets where we dump traffic from a smaller quantity road to a higher quantity road and so on and so forth. That gets us to this point where you know, we're magically experiencing maximum flow of traffic. However, that analogy does not work. It's not, as you mentioned earlier, it's really not appropriate or um, applicable to, to what we're talking about. So a lot of people that study this topic have really proposed that rather the appropriate analogy is the analogy of gas. Uh, the way that gas behaves, the way that it expands when given the room to expand, very much mimics the way that traffic works. When given more space in which to occupy, the cars and the people driving those cars will inevitably make that occupation happen. And if you continue to make more space, then again, more cars, more traffic comes in and spreads to occupy the space. Right. And you don't just have to necessarily take that analogy and believe it. We're going to dig into some of the why behind that um, in just a moment. But I just want to make sure that we've adequately explained the terminology here and, and just exactly the phenomenon that we're talking about. Some of the phrases that people will use are induced traffic or induced demand. I don't I don't love using that term because I think it sounds a little bit confusing. I think, AJ, you were saying you heard somebody refer to it as like incentivized traffic. I liked that term and I, I think it's really appropriate because what we're trying to convey in these discussions is that having the ability to make more trips, to have more capacity, to squeeze more people in on their way to and from point A and B essentially is an incentive to people to do that. Mm -hmm. It provides the opportunity and the allure in a way of saying, hey, you know, hop in your car and make this trip. You don't really need to do it any other way because we have this new super wide highway and it's going to be quick and easy for you to get exactly where you want to get in a short period of time. And everybody loves doing what they need to do in a short amount of time. Right. So simplest way of putting it is that more capacity translates to more use, uh, which is just a, a return to congestion. Another way of saying that would just be that the easier or cheaper you make it to do something, the more that they'll do it. So, you know, if driving, for example, becomes suddenly more easy, like easier than taking transit, for example, due to a road widening, more people will shift to driving, which is going to increase congestion. Or if a road widening makes it possible for developers to save money by building in more distant places where land is cheaper, then they're going to do that. And we'll talk about how road widening can kind of lead to more sprawl, which generates more traffic and congestion. Ultimately, we are creatures of not only of habit, but we are creatures of the fastest, shortest, quickest, easiest way of doing something. And right. so, you know, we all do this when we're talking with our friends and we're talking about going here or here. 
we often equate it to minutes, right? I can do that. I can be there in 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. I can be over here in 35 minutes. And anything that reduces the amount of minutes that we can be somewhere feeds that need for instant gratification. And we're we're there. And that is all the incentive that we often need. Yeah, it it really is. And I think it was um, maybe Jarrett Walker, who I've seen talk about this in terms of like, organisms will seek the least energy intensive way of accomplishing something. It sort of makes sense that if I need to get groceries, this is an example from today, I almost drove to somewhere to get groceries. And then I checked on Google Maps and found out that due to congestion, it was a lot further away than I'd like it to be. So I went to a different grocery store. But I also want to mention before we move on, while we're completing the the picture from a 101 level, that the whole process can also change the shape of the urban area so that people are traveling longer distances due to sprawl and slower speeds due to congestion. And so, you know, as a result, you need to spend more of that energy, if we're speaking in like an organism terms, more energy to reach the same resources that we would have gotten to before. As, as road miles are added, you know, it becomes more incentivized to, to space things further apart. That ultimately leaves us in a, a what Jarrett Walker calls a weakened state, or what you might just call a more fragile scenario. Um, but that's, that's sort of getting, getting a little bit ahead of ourselves now. Okay, so why don't we dig a little bit further into how this process happens and why it keeps happening. But I think to, to get there, we, we need to understand how it starts. And I think there's a few different places that it starts. I think we should talk about how people's attitudes towards like being frustrated with their commute time mm-hmm. play into this. And then how the kind of corresponding calls for easing the costs of congestion, which we've mentioned in the last episode, those reports that put the economic toll at something crazy yeah, and the need to build our way out of this economic burden. Because otherwise, you know, if it's bad now, it's only going to get worse. Right. So I think that among other things, those are like a couple of places to start. And I do have a couple thoughts on the thought process that goes on from like a personal standpoint among people who aren't experts or professionals in in the Mm -hmm. sphere of traffic engineering. Most of us who rely on a car to get around, especially if we live in a city, you know, we are going to experience traffic congestion at some point. And this is the friction that makes the whole driving experience unpleasant, unpredictable, frustrating. Regular traffic congestion, I think, exerts a lot of pressure on our on our decision-making. So from small things about like what time of day to go shopping or when to leave for work, or but also like to bigger ones, like where we choose to live, uh, to work, to socialize and so on. And I think that people, we complain about things that are frustrating. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think especially if they seem like a problem that somebody else created and can and should solve. Right. And I think especially like related to traffic, a common complaint is, you know, my commute is cumbersome and it ought to be easier. That's like a a common like political trope is like, I'm going to make your commute easier. Yeah. And I think (laughs) Transportation for America has a great graphic that illustrates that it's, you know, what we're promised 
And it's this photo of all of these wide open lanes and a handful of cars and everyone's got their own lane and there's nothing in their way. And then there's, and here's the reality of it. And you see everybody Uh backed up in in five o'clock traffic. And so, you know, it's a faulty premise to start with. Yeah. And our human nature sometimes is, you know, to get tunnel vision and we see this thing in front of us that we view as the problem. Yeah. And that's what we set to work on trying to solve or convince others to solve and not looking at a broader view of, is this really the problem or is this a symptom? And there's a psychologist, his name is Dr. Leon James. I've, I've read some of his testimony before Congress and fascinating guy. They actually refer to him as Dr. Driving because he's testified so often related to human psychology and influence on traffic and driving Uh behaviors. And one of the things that he's well known for pointing out, whether it is in road rage or just in everyday behavior behind the wheel, is that when it comes to traffic, our natural tendency is to focus on ourselves. We dismiss out of hand this communal tendency of driving and the need for a communal solution. It's Mm. really about ourselves and us being inconvenienced or held up and how can we do something better? And then another thing that he talks about, and and this has been backed up by a couple of other studies where they have uh, surveyed people to understand our threshold for change. Mm -hmm. Even when that commute is brutal, as we explain to people, and it's too slow and it's too long, we have a threshold they found of about 30 minutes mm-hmm. of extra time before we'll even consider a modification to our route, right. a modification to our mode that we choose for transportation. Right. Um, there's a lot of psychology wrapped up in this issue that we're talking about. Oh, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because I was reading this week through a couple of Jeff Speck's books that mm-hmm. if you're interested, he's a pretty accessible read on the topics of suburban development patterns and uh, what it takes to build a walkable city. And in each of those, he talks a little bit about the phenomenon of induced demand. One of the things that he mentions was this idea that how crowded a roadway is at any given moment represents a condition of equilibrium between people's desire to drive and their reluctance to fight traffic. What he's saying is that people will ultimately tailor their behavior to like a just bad enough situation where it still makes sense to put up with it. And then they will stop at a certain point once they've decided that those trips aren't worth it. Yep. And like we were saying, like some on the smaller scale, maybe that changes when you go to the store or if you go to the store that day. But on the bigger scale, it's like also may change where you decide to locate or the job that you choose. Um, And so in his framing of it, this is almost like a natural phenomenon, but that um, the use of these corridors is going to expand to the capacity that's available. I was just going to say too, we talked about the justification for these types of widenings and, you know, reconstruction and, and such as it relates to this belief that is baked into all of us that, more space equals I can move faster. Yeah. But 
you know, that's not the only motivation. We also have, you know, you alluded to these studies that we see that in some cases are quite creative in putting dollar amounts to costs of traffic. Right. Um, the implication being we're wasting money. Let's mm. move faster. And another thing that typically follows in lockstep with that is this whole economic development kind of justification where we say, look, these costs are not just personal costs. They're costing our community. They're costing our employers in the community. Right. They are costing us tourism and, you know, all of these things that make the congestion the enemy. And again, tend to drag us back to, well, more space means there's room for everyone. Let's just yeah. do that. And I think that this ties back to the kind of lay person, I want to say maybe like knee jerk response. And what I'm about to say, I think highlights a problem that we have in a lot of facets of, I'll just say American society. And that is kind of thinking through the lens of like a single variable or input yeah. instead of having a more holistic systems understanding because on the surface level to many people and possibly also from conditioning through advertisements is that there are too many people trying to do what I'm doing. So they need to make more room for it. Yeah. The thought is, it's ridiculous that they didn't think this through. And, and that's a thought that I've had, right? Yeah. How did they not plan for this? We've all been guilty of that. Absolutely. These idiots have not thought through rush hour. Right. Well, that's another piece of human psychology. And I don't think it's unfair to say in America, we're probably particularly guilty of this. You know, there's that saying, seek first to understand and then be understood. Yeah. You know, yeah. we seek first to solve, not to understand. <laughs> we really don't want to take the time to, to understand. I mean, my God, I don't have time for that. Let's just solve the damn problem. Right. And that leads us to ignore some of the multifaceted kind of long-term and short-term mm -hmm. effects that this phenomenon of traffic equals make the road wider and the cycle that we continue to find ourselves in, which, by the way, feels like the same thing over and over again. But it's really not because mm. there's that pesky little business of the millions of dollars of debt we incur each time the cycle turns over. Oh, yeah. I think <laughs> I don't even know that we'll really get to spend too much time on the debt incurred and the expense incurred at, you know, quote unquote, solving this problem. But it's going back to the kind of like individual response, we could sort of say like, why are there so many people driving? Somebody make them stop. Like that could be the other way we go. It's like, why didn't they make more road? Sort of like if you're in the grocery store and like there's one yeah. cashier and you're like, why is there not more open? Which I think every time I go to the grocery store. <laughs> all right. Well, the reverse <laughs> right. you could think is like, somebody make all these people stop. But then I don't know what the next step is like, <laughs> Wouldn't I just be kept from driving if all these other people were kept from driving? Right. Right. And so without taking a systems view of the issue of traffic congestion and focusing on the auto industry preferred roadway capacity lens, you know, the approach is just going to be that we keep adding lanes and roads and re that, you know, kind of regardless of the actual outcomes. Yeah. And we, we sort of, we started hinted at this earlier, but 
we could really like crank the cynicism on this episode to to 10 or to zero and the outcomes seem to be the same. Yeah. But traffic congestion seems to be one of these perfect, if you're in the business of roadway building, it's one of these perfect things because intuitively it seems to make sense that if you expand that things will get better. Right. And so like the money gets approved and then the added capacity doesn't make congestion any better. Right. And so you can just be like, well, I told you that traffic was going to get worse. Look, what if we hadn't added all these new lanes? Right. And there have been politicians that have have been quoted saying things like that. Well, you know, the population has grown in the time that we've done this. So, of course, the demand is higher, you know, and and while there may may be some logic embedded within that, it it ignores so much. I mean, there, you know, there were a couple of economists Back in 2009, that looked at a 20-year stretch between 1980 and 2000. They looked at all the new roads and highways built nationwide in different U.S. cities. And I don't think it's coincidence that the increase in total miles driven over the same period of time (laughs) matched with what they had, the efforts that they had put in to do that. They said, in fact, that there was this one-to-one relationship. And we've seen this time and time again, but it doesn't always fit the narrative of of the moment. I think, too, another kind of critique, and sure, it's easy to sit here and and think of critiques, but I think, you know, (laughs) DOTs and engineering and highway related entities that are kind of in this business of widening highways and widening roads and building new roads and all of this in the sake and in the name of we're going to reduce congestion are always looking forward and they don't often ever stop and look backwards and talk about that, which I think is a fatal flaw. We're always worried about rolling out predictions and the next set of numbers, but we really don't do a good job of looking backward and saying, well, we just did this thing. That, by the way, was probably several billions of dollars. Uh-huh. Uh, was it successful? Maybe we should have an open dialogue about that before we do the same thing again. Everyone loves to parrot the quote about how doing the same thing over and over and expecting the <laughs> same result, you know, expecting different results rather, um, is the definition of insanity. Need I say more? <laughs> no, I mean, this is one of the most perfect examples of this possible. And it's also a subject that there have been so many studies on that come to the same conclusion across North America. I was just the other day reading about one that examined like over 500 projects in Europe, and they all come to the same conclusion that if it's about congestion, you're not reducing congestion. If it's about, um, I think we'll talk in a few minutes about the, usually the like sales pitches for uh, roadway widening. If it's about, yeah. I don't know, lessening miles traveled, it always corresponds to increasing miles traveled. In one sense, it's like, this is actually kind of a little bit of a tricky topic to research from a, like isolate, oh, exactly what specific things contribute to which specific trips. So it's like maybe deceptively complicated, but I've heard a number of people refer to this as just like a fundamental law, Mm. like an observed phenomenon that you don't need to keep studying. Like an axiom, I think, is a thing that you don't have to keep Someone referred to this as like, you don't have to keep studying circles to find like, you know, the value for pi. Right. You can just move on to new problems. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Michael Jordan. 
McDonald's restaurants have given me this time to talk to you about something we both really care about, kids. Kids are the reason McDonald's sponsors their Get It Straight program, a national highway expansion awareness effort. Think about this. Many of you using highway expansion out there now are under 18. Do you realize that at 18, you have lived only one-fourth of your life? When you're using highway expansion, you're only cheating yourself out of the chance to find out who you really can be. And believe me, if you don't use highway expansion, you can just about be anything you want to be. Listen, you've got at least three-fourths of your life to go. That's three more lifetimes to you. So don't blow it. Don't do highway expansion. If you're doing it, stop it. Get some help. McDonald's wants you to give yourself a chance. A chance to find out all the wonderful things you really can be. And so do I. You mentioned predictions, and I know this is a little out of uh, order from maybe where our <laughs> outline was going, but how about if we take a moment to talk about traffic, uh, what are they called? Traffic studies? Yeah, to talk about we traffic We have to studies. talk about traffic studies because I can tell you someone that worked in municipal government for a long time. That's always the question. On one hand, people are saying, well, how do we have traffic? Hmm. Don't you guys do studies on this stuff? Right. Now, incidentally, then you also have a certain subgroup of people that are going, traffic impact analysis, you're not going to make me pay for that. It's going to drive up the cost of my development, but that's for another day. Uh-huh. So let's talk about traffic studies. I know you've got some some good um, info on this that I think people need to hear because most people do not spend their day reviewing traffic studies or talking about them. Right. And I am certain that you have far more experience with traffic studies than I do. But as I was reading back through Jeff Speck's Walkable City, he mentioned traffic studies and he he refers to them as like the most inevitable activity in planning. Want to do anything significant in any neighborhood? Uh, you have to do a traffic study. Why? Because people are afraid of that scourge of society, traffic congestion. Yeah. yeah. And he says, since it's the only real constraint to driving, congestion is the one place where people are made to feel the pinch in their automotive lives. Were it not for congestion, we would drive enough additional miles to make congestion. That's nice. Which is just the little quote that I thought was nice. But on his way to talking about traffic studies, which he calls, and I quote, uh, bullshit. Yep. <laughs> he calls them bullshit for three reasons. One is that, you know, they're based on computer models. Not that computer models are bullshit. They are very useful, but that they are also only as good as the inputs. That's correct. And you can tweak the inputs to get the outcome or the output that you want. Right. So you can tweak the growth assumptions. There's always growth, even if cities are shrinking. You tweak out pedestrian elements because that's going to lower your, that's going to create more congestion. And his point was that he had witnessed people making tweaks to kind of get the answers that they wanted. Have you witnessed anything like that? I won't say I've witnessed that directly, but here's what you need to know if you're a layperson listening to us going, I don't even know what traffic studies are, nor do I have any interest in reading them. <laughs> I don't don't have worry. Time for this podcast anymore. <laughs> don't worry, because I am going to make sure that you never have a need to read one ever in your life. Yeah. Because here's the bottom line: traffic studies do one thing. They tell you that you need to do a lot more investment in road infrastructures because there's gonna be an increase in traffic. That's they all 
various degrees, but that's the bottom line. I may be oversimplifying a little bit. I'm sure I'll have listeners that say, okay, you're really painting with a broad brush. But in my opinion, that is the outcome, the bottom line outcome of traffic studies. And that's the bottom line because Stone Cold said so. That's not to say that they're never of any use. Right. I, I do want to say that. But yeah, I mean, I've never seen a traffic study come across the desk that said, great news. This is going to solve right. the traffic problem in this location. Do yeah. it now. You know, that doesn't happen. And then not to be, well... To be a little cynical, I'll just also repeat his second refrain, which is that these are often or pretty much always performed by traffic engineering firms, which makes sense. But then you realize that like they also get lucrative contracts for roadway expansions. And so there's, to put it nicely, a conflict of interest there. Yeah. And too often the result is just coincidentally, you should contract out to us to you know spend a lot of money building roads. And the third one is that they never consider the phenomenon of induced traffic, yep. which is probably the biggest one, I think. Yep. Accurate. So that's the kind of traffic model input that I think we should be aware of. I think we maybe want to back up and talk about some of the components that make up induced traffic because we've talked around them a little bit, but I just want to make sure we hit them before moving on. And this is going to sound kind of academic and boring maybe at first, but hopefully this makes sense. When people talk about induced demand or induced traffic, it's kind of like a discussion of multiple inputs, one of which is latent demand, which could just be like the demand that's pent up for people to drive somewhere, but it's they don't because of any kind of constraints such as traffic congestion. And so if the real constraint, as Jeff Speck had said, is on driving is traffic, uh, more so than cost, people are always ready to take more trip when the traffic goes away. And I've seen estimates that maybe 30% of existing traffic comes from this latent demand where it's like, well, if there's no traffic, then I might as well take this trip to the store or, or, or whatever. Along with that comes the idea that adding lanes just makes more supply available at not really any extra cost for this existing latent demand. In other words, people who are already living nearby who don't necessarily need to take the trips will if it becomes easier to do so. If the trip to Trader Joe's is going to take 12 minutes instead of 30 minutes, eh, I guess I might as well go. The other element is uh, called generated demand, and that's like the new traffic that's a direct result of the new capacity. And sometimes these can be, this is like the tricky part to study, to like disentangle the latent existing demand from the just purely new demand for travel uh, that was created by the addition of of lanes or, or new roads. I mean, basically, the idea is like faster perceived travel times gets people out there and, and taking new trips uh, that they wouldn't take. To me, they kind of overlap and seem pretty similar. And so mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to get lost too much in the weeds on that because it's a phenomenon we just keep observing. But what's your take on that? Yeah, I I think, you know, I think we've kind of gotten to the bottom line and I, there's going to be people that are going to listen and they may disagree and, and they may feel that, you know, we've really boiled this down to something that 
ignores nuance and, and, and that sort of thing. So I encourage anybody. We are no- ignoring some nuance. <laughs> <laughs> I do encourage people listening to, you know, kind of do do your own reading um, if you're so inclined and, and learn a little bit more about this. AJ, one thing that I really want to make sure that we talk about before we move on from some of the mechanics behind why adding more lanes or more roadways leads to more congestion is this discussion about costs and like how we pay to drive. Mm-hmm. This is one of the most, I don't want to say counterintuitive, but one of the least like obvious ones to okay. me. So hopefully, hopefully this makes sense. When it comes to driving, most of the costs are already fixed, whether we drive a little bit or a lot. And these can be personal, like your car related, the cost of buying or financing your car, insurance on that car, um, the cost of maintenance. You know, I guess that'll go up the more you drive it. You know, and it's also from the infrastructure side. The streets and the roads are already there. And those carry a cost, but are subsidized and distributed in different ways we can talk about later. So, you know, I've seen an estimate from AAA that the operating costs are something like one-fifth of the actual ownership costs. And so you, you pay to drive, really, whether you drive or not. And therefore, you know, driving more miles gets your cost per mile down, right? So basically, the idea is that, like, it's not so much the cost of driving that keeps us at home, it's congestion. And so if you add more capacity for more, you know, cars to be on the road, they'll fill up because people, like, have, can find reasons and will find reasons to do something that becomes easier. And so the fact that automobile use is so subsidized ends up contributing to this phenomenon. I've seen it written up as automobile use as like a, what's known as a free good, which would make it like the intelligent choice for most Americans because we only pay a tiny fraction of the real costs. And for free goods, demand goes through the roof. Like free goods in US cities would be like parking spaces, roads, and freeways. And so like the services provided to the motorists and the trucking industry basically function as quote unquote free goods. The traffic engineering, the traffic control, Traffic lights, pedestrian overpasses, street repair. These are all things that we don't see the cost of in actually operating a vehicle. I've seen reports that government subsidies for highways and parking account for something like 8 to 10% of our GDP. It actually may be higher since the source I pulled that from. As of 2000, which was 22 years ago, this accounted for $5,000 per car per year. And I guess the point that I'm making here is like the money discussion, sort of like the hidden subsidy also contributes to how our demand for making use of the new capacity can fluctuate so immediately with the new capacities because it's not it's not a cost issue. The cost has already been mostly put into the ownership of the car. Yeah, it makes sense. And I think we're probably at this point having listeners say, well, okay, so you guys have blown this up. What do we do? <laughs> so do we want to talk for a minute about some of the different alternatives that have been tried? <sighs> Yeah, we should talk about some because 
it's not only road widening and new roadway building that's been used as a, I guess, solution to congestion. Some other examples are like HOV, H to the OV. or carpool lanes. Congestion pricing is another one. Didn't um, Los Angeles ha- have like a billion dollar carpool lane sometime in the past decade that was put in on that stretch of the freeway that was famous for the Carmageddon like 10 years ago? Mm-hmm. This is how the 405, dubbed the nation's busiest freeway, usually looks. Because this stretch is so heavily traveled, it needs to be widened. And to be widened, it needs to be completely shut down. Los Angeles residents have a word for what's to come. Carmageddon. And they had similar results to their widening project that the Katy Freeway did. But yeah, you want to just, let's just run through. Yeah. I mean, as you mentioned, congestion pricing is one. And of course that's, that's kind of based on this philosophy that, well, okay, congestion is here and is a problem. So, you know, those that are contributing to the problem, we're going to define a system that essentially requires anyone contributing to the congestion problem to chip in, Mm -hmm. which on its face may seem like a great solution. But when we're talking about highways, just like with any other topic that you're going to hear us talk about on the show, we're always remiss if we don't include um, in our thoughts about how to move forward, understanding how it affects not just people as a general group, but how it affects different subgroups of the population. And so congestion pricing is one of those that some may hold that up as an example. Others that have been critical of it have said, you know, it really has a disproportionate impact across the population and it really hits certain groups of the population harder than it does others. And those same groups, by the way, are the same groups that are hit harder by everything else. Mm-hmm. So it's true. that's something that has been widely debated. It's tricky to find the balance, you know, on a congestion pricing scheme between too little that doesn't really make much of a dent and too much that's like a huge, what do they call them, le- making them Lexus lanes. Right, right. Just to be clear, there have been some examples. I think London and Stockholm are the two that stand out that have had mm-hmm. significant like core city area congestion decreases. You're talking about where they've strategically placed those in certain parts of the city right. that are known for high congestion. Yeah. So it's not the same one size fits all approach to congestion pricing that we've right. seen maybe in other parts of the country um, or or worldwide, but really understands and and actually as we were talking about earlier, you know, kind of looks at the the problem, the complaint, mm-hmm. and then kind of zooms out bigger and says, okay. Where specifically is this happening Um, and how can we focus by not applying it to anything and everything, but in the places where it's needed most, which I think is a great, I'm glad you brought up those examples. That's a really important distinction and and kind of a lesson in how we look at these types of problems um, in the future. Well, and crucially for places like London and Stockholm, uh, among others, there are alternatives, right? It's not, I yes. think the reason that congestion pricing works is it basically tilts the, you know, calculus of what makes more sense, more in favor of whether it's spiking or transit use. There actually are viable alternatives. You know, this is a different thing from, let's just say, 
Arlington, Texas, <laughs> <laughs> putting congestion pricing and then being like, also you're on your own because we have no transit and no bike infrastructure. That is like a pretty, I think a pretty important element to consider. Yeah, I agree. What do you think about HOV lanes? I haven't done a whole lot of reading into these. I know that some people have some problems with them because it's sort of like a propping up of the same highway expansion system and and maybe over-promising and under-delivering. And so before I get to my real take, I, I did find it interesting. I didn't realize this until pretty recently that HOV lanes used to be, I think it was like four or more people in a vehicle could use an HOV lane. And maybe mm-hmm. this is California specific. I don't know. Um, and, then, and then they reduced it to three and then to two people. So I, I just find that kind of cute. That's cute, man. It's cute. I guess my take is that some of these schemes, if they're not also paired with stepping up investments in public transit, in changing land use requirements to favor more infill, like dense building that allows for walkable development can just sort of be band-aids on the problem of automobile dependence. I totally agree. So so if you're listening and you don't know what that is, HOV is high occupancy vehicle lanes. And so the whole mm-hmm. notion behind it was, you know, this is a way to provide an incentive um, for people to use ride sharing services, for people to use public transportation. Um, and so the incentive is by you doing these things that are productive behaviors that limit presumably, the number of vehicles on the road needed to carry the number of people that are mm-hmm. there, you get this dedicated lane. But you're you're right. I agree with you. You know, we hear that and we think, well, that sounds good. But then there's other questions that have to follow, such as, first of all, is public transportation even possible in the area in which you're encouraging? You, you have to kind of tie that intentionality to possibility and that that doesn't always happen. Right. You know, another thing that people have talked about is parking reduction in areas. You know, if uh, you can access the area in other ways, and it is an increased challenge if you're trying to do so in a vehicle, whereby requiring parking, perhaps it dissuades people from choosing that mode of transportation to to arrive. What strikes me the most about that particular approach is it presumes, and unfortunately this is true, but it presumes that this notion of areas that are places people want to be, that mm-hmm. are active, that are easy to transverse to tra- transverse on foot, that those areas are novelties and they're rare, which is an unfortunate truth that we've discussed <laughs> on this podcast many times. Yeah. And so I won't spin off on that one, but that's an interesting you know, observation. Yeah. Well, you know, places that are very walkable by their nature have become kind of like luxury goods in a country where they've been made, you know, close to extinct. Right. Yeah. I see people getting criticized for complaining about how their commute is really expensive and time consuming when they could have just located closer to where they worked. And then the clap back to that is like, yeah, well, that's really expensive. How can you expect everybody? Mm -hmm. Blah, blah, blah. And I guess it's just really unfortunate that it's not the case everywhere that 
living in a walkable place is so expensive just because of the walkability. It's just that there's so little, speaking of supply and demand, there's so little supply for this, for this demand. Right. So AJ, I think we've, you know, we've explored some of the technocratic approaches to, eh, what if we made congestion better by, you know, tinkering around the edges and still not totally replacing car orientation. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about one approach to lessening congestion that has been seen to work in places uh, across the world. And that is the reverse phenomenon of induced traffic. Some people can call this like uh, dissuaded traffic or reduced or evaporated traffic. And that's basically like, well, if you're getting congestion by all these new roadways, highways and highway expansions, what if you just took them away? Especially from like urban settings. Mm -hmm. And the result is that we have examples of this. Um, In 1973, New York City's West Side Highway collapsed. New York City. A land of opportunity. And so they just didn't rebuild it. And a, a New York Department of Transportation study showed that 93% of car trips that were lost did not reappear elsewhere. It's just that people stopped driving. They found other ways to do what they needed to or didn't take car trips, you know, that they didn't need to. And the same thing happened um, very famously after the earthquake in San Francisco in 1989. The Embarcadero Freeway was damaged and and the people there voted to remove the freeway completely. Traffic engineers suggested that this would be disastrous. Same results, not disastrous. It's actually one of the most desirable and expensive places in San Francisco. And so far from the, oh, it boosts economic development, arguments ringing true, these places have seen economic vibrancy return. So why isn't that happening in more locations? Why isn't it? It's, it's a great point. And... You have to wonder, don't you? <laughs> like, what's the quote that you can't count on somebody changing their mind whose salary depends on them not changing their mind or not not learning? You know what I'm <laughs> referring to? Mm-mm. I think it's an Upton Sinclair quote. Mm. Okay. We keep, like you said, not learning our lesson. And maybe it is that like we do keep learning the lesson very strongly. Like maybe the traffic engineering crew and the road building crew and the auto industry. The lesson and the message is heard loud and clear that if you harp about congestion enough and say, we just need to build more roads to solve it, you just keep getting more money from the government to build more roads and treat it. Yeah. Which is fortunate for for that group perhaps, but not as fortunate for the communities and the state DOTs that are continuing to incur debt that they cannot possibly keep up with. Um, at any point in the future, which, you know, also leads me to think that perhaps it's more of a twofold solution. You know, the concept that you shared of reduced or dissuaded demand is is certainly one approach. And there will be some areas, I think, that are going to be more receptive to that sort of idea than others. But I think the other piece of this, there's a gentleman named Gabriel Dupuis who writes a lot about car dependence and sustainable transportation Mm -hmm. and those types of things. And one of the things he wrote was that, you know, the effects of congestion on the automobile based system are minor compared to the effects of car dependence. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the second piece of this puzzle is we have to start having a more nuanced discussion about what the problem actually is. And the problem isn't actually congestion. 
we have talked about before on on the podcast about how land use and transportation are intertwined. We've talked about sprawl. We've talked about the issues with offering other alternative modes of transportation and how it's nice to talk about it. But if it's not there and it's not available, then it really doesn't matter. And so I think that has to be part of the equation moving forward is Mm -hmm. these things have to be part of the same conversation. They are not off topic. They are incredibly germane because as we're continuing to widen these roads, it is dictating the land use of our cities. It is dictating the design. It is dictating our behavior. And I think there's a a certain level where that tension is going to become too much and we're going to have to move in a different direction. We will only have so much tolerance yeah. uh, for that direction to continue. Yeah. The endless expansion of roadways is a self-preservation reality for the auto industry and for the roadway building industry. Because the more reliant you are on cars to get around, well, the more you have to keep doubling and tripling and quadrupling down on that. Yeah, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It is. We talked about this last time about how even among people who recognize the problem of car dependency will still be like, well, you can't have your new development not have enough parking. Everyone uses a car. And so like, this is a pretty tricky thing that we can't just keep stepping on the accelerator down, (laughs) down the highway towards incineration. We haven't even talked about gas prices yet. Absolutely. That's a huge factor. And how those are Mm -hmm. having an impact on the cars, number of cars on the road. Yeah. And then there's, you know, there's also things like the fact that everyone's reliant on GPS apps these days, like Waze and Google Maps. Uh You know, there was a study done in a Pew survey done in 2015, and they found that 90% of Americans that had a smartphone were using them for directions on most trips. And the thing is, those apps are designed to plug into our insatiable need for convenience and speed and making sure that we um, have the fastest route to get us there in the time that we want to get there by. So that fixation, which we have only continued to feed into with the use of technology in these ways, and I'm not necessarily arguing that that technology is bad, but it certainly is influenced by the way that we behave as drivers behind the wheel that makes, you know, higher speeds our priority. Just as we talked in the last episode about higher speeds being the priority Mm -hmm. of some traffic engineers, keeping that flow of traffic as high as possible in order to not really inconvenience anyone. And what we're missing in that conversation is a higher prioritization of things like more access to places for people. Mm-hmm. And you could argue, since we're so obsessed with costs and trying to quantify costs, right. what are the costs of people not having access to places? What are the costs on businesses that could gain from people having access to those locations? What are the costs in instances where highways essentially act as barriers? Right. You know, there, There's a lot of other costs out there that we could be focused on. And we're not looking at them. Right. Yeah. We haven't really talked hardly at all about the cost of of doing all this. It's like we've sort of been talking about the efficacy of 
whether you actually do solve congestion by adding roadway capacity. But yeah, even if it did, are we convinced? Are we really all convinced that it's worth all these billions of dollars to choke out our cities and the places we live to ever increase the amount of roadway and decrease the amount of, I don't know, land that the buildings actually sit on? I don't know that it'd even be worth it if it was actually solving the problem and add to it that it's not really changing the problem. And like we talked about last time, you can't have congestion if you don't have cars. Right. Really. Disneyland, inside of Disneyland, doesn't have a whole lot of congestion because nobody's taking cars to get around. Right. Well, and you bring up another good point, Jordan, which is that the costs are not all monetary. There's the societal costs, the cultural costs that also need to be factored into these tidy little reports that basically feed into our self-victimization of you know, I'm stuck behind the wheel on this highway for far too long and I don't like it. It really ignores a lot of the the bigger issues at hand, which, by the way, are the same kinds of issues that elected and appointed officials who love to announce more money for a highway yes. and road expansion are, by the way, also responsible for looking out for. Yeah. Well, you know, a common thing, you know, especially in politics, is the desire to be seen to be doing something about a problem, not always to be actually taking care of that problem. And so yeah. ribbon cutting on a on a widening or a new roadway, that's that looks good. That looks like you're doing something. Right. I think we got to start paying attention to the justifications. You know, you talked about the Texas A&M mobility report last time, and you mm -hmm. called it justification for the business of highway building or something like that, I think we got to really start paying attention to these justifications that get trotted out for the business of highway building or, or of roadway expansion. It's not just highways, but any expansion because right. previously and currently it's, you know, the number one is like the alleviation of congestion, right? But then you'll also hear, you know, when that kind of doesn't pan out, sometimes you'll hear an acknowledgement of it a little bit. And then it's like, well, it's economic development or economic growth, right? Well, it's, that's what spurs the economy. And well, you know, there's evidence that transit, it's, uh, I think it was two or four times the amount of jobs get created from transit investments. And I'm, I'm a little wary about like job creation as a, it's usually just always something you plug into whatever argument you're trying to make. Sure. But, and then you'll hear like, oh, it's the, actually it's an environmental issue. Because congestion is just this environmental catastrophe. People run in their engines all the time. And so right. if you reduce congestion, well, that saves fuel. Another thing that's not even true. It's fiction. We made it up. We made this one up. It's a made-up tale. It's a total fabrication. It never happened. Like, there's a strong correlation between a metro area's average traffic speed and its fuel use. Cities with less congestion use more fuel per capita. Recently, we've been seeing uh, kind of a new one, which is, I guess, equity. Like equity is the argument for for roadway expansions. Um, City Observatory, great go-to for, you know, coverage on this topic. They're talking this week about claims from Oregon Department of Transportation that the primary beneficiaries of their $5 billion freeway widening are just going to actually benefit low income and people of color. And they looked into it and found like this is a load of fiction. It's an urban legend that never happened. 
No way. We got you. And it's you start to have to realize that they f- continue to find the next thing that's the justification. Right, right. We really got to start being a little bit more critical. Well, not only that, I think we need to be more questioning. Yeah. And, you know, we're always taught that people that, you know, it, it's in, embedded in us when we're children, right? You never want to be that that one kid that raises their hand and asks for homework or, you know, asks too many questions and it makes the teacher angry and we're all punished for it. You know, yeah. we're taught that asking too many questions is a problem. Yes, we are. But it's not. And if we asked more questions, you know, you were talking about, you know, the environmental argument about, you know, reducing congestion, therefore reduces the environmental impact. Mm -hmm. Well, if you really read that and you think about it, you realize very quickly that what they're talking about is the reduction of emissions while idling. Yes. Not the reduction of emissions. Certainly not the reduction of emissions from building the damn highways in the first place. Right. You know, in our soundbite, 120 characters, three second, you know, attention span world that we've created for ourselves, we don't allow our adequate time for asking the questions. You know, we also find ourselves in situations in communities of all sizes where we say, well, so-and-so has these credentials and they're saying this. So it is, right? Which is ironic because credentialed planners are always <laughs> questioned about everything. Right. But we we really don't allow um, the way our public hearings are set up, the way that actions are taken. You know, it's not really receptive or conducive to having those greater discussions where someone just says, you know, time out before we continue rolling down this road, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about the the other unanticipated consequences of doing this that might affect our community? Exactly. I think that's always a welcome question. Why yep. why do we make that such an unwelcome question? <laughs> yeah. This makes me think of the discussion of having skin in the game. Mm-hmm. Right. I think a lot of these decisions would be made a lot differently if the people making them also had the skin in the game of experience in this. Right. I agree. Yeah. You know, and if you're if you're still skeptical about this after listening to us and y- you want to see an example that's really relevant to you and where you live, there's a great tool that we can include in our show notes. It's called the Shift Calculator. Shift stands for State Highway Induced Frequency of Travel. And it's a handy little calculator where you can enter your state the type of road, either the MSA, Metropolitan Statistical Area, or the county, depending on whether it's an interstate or a county road, and the lane miles that are proposed to be added in a project that you're watching. And it will calculate for you the induced demand that will be generated by that project. So, you know, before we were recording and we were kind of preparing for this, I ran a few of the projects that are happening right now in my area through Uh it. And I was expecting a, a certain result. And not only did it confirm that result, it actually surprised me in the estimation that I was not prepared for. So oh. it's a pretty eye-opening, quick little exercise you can do. Yeah. Well, do we have any other things that we want to say about this topic? I think we, you know, need to offer up some pieces of homework i mean if there were ever a time to dig into this a little more 
where you live. Man, this is it. All right. So now it's time to wrap this puppy up. We have a little homework as usual. One piece of homework. Check out the show notes. We have a lot of great reading for you to do if you want to learn more about the topic. But the other piece of that is a little bit more active. Yes. So it's a thinking, deep thinking exercise. (laughs) (laughs) Or perhaps prompting a conversation around your kitchen table or something along those lines. Which is to think about how we can use this whole fundamental law, some would argue, of induced demand and how it could actually be characterized as a positive influence in our lives, how it could actually influence our behavior in ways that result in healthier choices, better choices, things of that nature in our public lives. Mm -hmm. The first one that comes to mind for me is I love riding my bike to do things, but It's very difficult and uncomfortable in a lot of Dallas, which is where I live. And, you know, if we had better bike infrastructure, that would certainly induce a lot of demand for me (laughs) riding my bike a lot more. Yeah, that's a great example. So let us know uh, what amazing ideas and results you come up with. You can email us or uh, contact us on socials and we'd love to hear what you come up with. Yeah. And I just want to add as a disclaimer to the very end of this. Uh, This is an exhaustive episode. We covered everything that there was to cover and there's no (laughs) more. And so if you thought of an example that we didn't use to explain the phenomenon of induced traffic, you're uh, you're wrong because we actually covered everything. There are no other resources (laughs) or opinions, period. (laughs) Man, we could have done like a 10-hour miniseries on this, but... I don't I think we'd have choose. many listeners, though. By probably the end of not. It, so it, I'm it glad we went with a two-parter project. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I think so too. Well, this is where we're going to leave it. Uh, we got stuff to do, so we're going to say, "See you next time," and thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.